I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Lydia Lamelli. And we love to watch. We love to watch. Thanks, you're just majestical. Oh, cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? All on that day, will I run to the rock? Please hide me around the rock. Please hide me around the rock. Please hide me, Lord. All on that day, but the rock. Right hey, Pete. Hey, Lydia. Hi. Hi, hi. I'm trying to think of something else about the uh, the, the, the fast way the record is. Jetpack? Is that anything? I don't know. <laughs> well, do you have one uh, of those? No. <laughs> no? What? Um, so, yeah, we're, we'll just get right into it. Where we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of uh, a month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're in our third week of Who Needs a Hug Month, a month that we started doing because uh, it felt like a lot went on in 2020 specifically. A lot continues to go on in 2021, although somewhat, somehow – slightly less a lot in 2021 as opposed to 2020 for now anyway and it felt like we should do movies that peter and i claim we both love which are movies that lead to kind of an emotional catharsis or just a feel just feeling good vibes feeling like you saw something that had an emotional impact uh on on you and this one this this kind of this is our third episode but it's a our fourth slot we end up choosing um the Hunt for the Wilder People, uh, the 2016 uh, Taika Watiti movie that Peter and I both loved a lot. We had it on our uh, – we did our best of 2016 episode. I think Peter and I both had this fairly high, like in the four – Five range, but but we I think we had a little bit of debate under what this, this fourth entry or this other entry that we had trouble deciding on should be. I do love this movie. I think I was pushing a little harder for your name. Um, and uh, Peter, you were kind of like, yeah, let's figure out a different way to do that movie. I love that movie too. I really want to talk hunt for the wilder people. And as, and as I had kind of, uh, strong armed more than I, more than I knew at the time, (laughs) two of the entries of this month (laughs) that Peter does not like all that much, which is field of dreams and inside out. Uh, I, uh, I was like, yeah, we do hunt for the wilder people. Uh, and I, uh, I'm so glad we get to talk about it again. I do think that this is a little bit of the oddball compared to the rest of the movies this month and that this movie's um, kind of – where some of some of these movies, even Brigsby Bear, which we, talk about, which we talked about last week, kind of wear their sentimentality on their sleeve. And I think that this one is very like um, – it's an anti-sentiment, sentimental movie. And so it leaves me with the warm feelings, but maybe not the 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 wet the wet eyes the wet eyes the non dry eyes. Uh, my eyes don't get wet. I don't know. Uh, what a fucking weird way to start. But anyways, <laughs> we'll 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 get into that. Uh, I want to reintroduce our guest first, who's joining us uh, for lucky number three, uh, Lydia Lamalley, who's who's been on. Um, uh, before for the Crazies episode and then our Pet Cemetery episode, right? Yeah, I only have done two horror movies and this is my first non-horror. So I'm excited because it's it's even though I love horror, it's it's something different. Yeah, and I believe you were when we were uh, proposing some ideas that were coming up here in the first half of 2021. I uh, I think you gravitated towards this one because it was one of those I'd always meant to see it. 
Um, and also, I guess, as we learned in the Green War Room, um, that you hadn't seen a uh, Watiti movie before this one either. So, Lydia, why don't you introduce yourself a little to our audience and also tell everyone why you wanted to come on and talk about Hunt for the Wilder People. Well, my name is Lydia. I love my films. I love horror, the horror genre. Um, I love to be on podcasts to talk about films, of course, because that's what I like to do. And I like to do voiceovers in my spare time um, and try to make money doing ebooks. So that's what I'm working on in 2021 because the pandemic really threw a monkey wrench in my business. Um, and I'm excited to do this film because I have never seen a take a YTT film, but I, I've seen a couple New Zealand films. So I was really excited to give it a try and see if, um, um, like when I, when I watch Korean films, I've been missing out on Korean films. So I, I feel like um, my blind spot is New Zealand films. So that's why I was excited. And of course, he, um, what TT has a, a reputation and I have to catch up to what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you were doing, uh, I think last time you were on the show, you had just uh, finished your first ebook, uh, audiobook narration, right? Yes. Yes. And I'm working on the um, then, second one for six months now because it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's a little bit of an issue with recording because um, the kids are home. <laughs> yeah, all, so, all the time. I know how that goes. They're home all the time. So it's been hard to finish that second book. Uh, 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 yeah, so this is – so Peter, you uh, – again, I think we both love this movie and, and, and talked about it before on the show um, – I think you pushed a little bit harder to include it as part of this month. I think this was kind of like your baby that you wanted to make sure that we had some space to talk about. Um, and I mean, it does bring back, besides Watiti, who we'll get to in a minute, this is kind of our return to one of our favorite boys on this on this show. We have our worst boys, mm-hmm. which are no, like... No, no. Uh, yeah, name name some of our bad boys, but not like cool bad boys, like the ones that are do it for life, but like... Just shit boys. Like yeah, yeah. Craig Bierko. <laughs> Dean Kane. Oh, Dean Kane. Dean Kane's like one of the worst boys. Well, we have had no interaction with Kevin Sorbo, but he should probably be on the list based on some recent things I've read. <laughs> it's because it's Kevin Sorbo has never done anything relevant enough for us to watch or yeah. uh, comically irrelevant for us to watch. We've watched two Dean Kane films before we watched any Kevin Sorbo movies. Now, Eagle-eared listeners would note that we just did the same movie twice on two separate episodes, but I still think that counts. As Doesn't he just movies. do Lifetime movies? Oh, no. We did a movie that was uh, it was uh, starring him and Wesley Snipes and potentially someone else that I'm forgetting. Um, a little movie called Future Sport from 1998. Um Kind of a kind of a bonus episode because we did a future sport month, but then didn't do future sport. So I believe I ruined uh, a I don't know like a wedding or a camping trip or something because I wanted to talk to Peter about future sports in our back catalog. It's definitely I think our best work of all time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, our gimmick, but yeah, we did really shine. Dean Kane plays uh, I forget his name, but it's very funny. Um, but Absolutely. yeah, we never. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's a it's a rated. It was it was a made for TV movie that they decided to release to VHS uh, with an R rating. 
Ooh. So they have like Dean Cain say fuck once. Ooh. Otherwise, it's like a, a made for TV movie. And Wesley Snipes is in it for 10 minutes. It's it's from 1998. It is. It's very funny. <laughs> like, it's not it's not the worst movie in the world. I think I now own it because that was the only way to watch it for our show. But uh, it is. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a movie that stars Dean Cain, which is more than I can say for Kevin Sorbo. Which we yeah. have not done. Yeah. And, and Kevin Sorbo, uh, what are we going to do? Watch a made-for-TV uh, Hercules film? What are we going to do? Or God's Not Dead Part 2 or whatever the fuck. Which one okay, we, we, if we had kept doing our religious podcast, we probably would have covered God's Not Dead 1 and 2. To be yeah, fair. we got close. You know, we did two whole episodes. So, But before we could declare God dead, the... He struck, he struck down our podcast. Yeah, uh, Through indifference. Yeah, the, the network canceled the show. He doesn't like to- blasphemy, I'm telling you. <laughs> doesn't care for it. I should have listened care. to literally any of the thousands of people who told me that growing up. Uh, <laughs> thousands? Was there like a line where they told you this, Peter? That you, like, get to the front of the blasphemy line. We got a pretty pretty big group today. But, uh, no, we, we're going to talk one, about one famous uh, bad boy of the show. We can't just leave him off the list. Or is leaving him off the list an ultimate insult to him? Frank Whaley? Frank Whaley. Yeah, that guy sucks. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, go on, go on to talk about Sam Neill. But we have one, yeah, we have one of our good Sam boys. Neill. Uh, and this is, you know, uh, Lydia, you mentioned not a horror movie, but uh, I think an actor that Peter and I uh, love from horror movies. This is definitely our first non-horror movie episode that he's been on. We've uh, not him personally, of course. He's too busy being awesome with uh, a sheep farm or whatever he's doing now in New Zealand. Um, but uh, yeah, this is our fourth Sam Neill movie. We've covered uh, Possession uh, in the Mouth of Madness and Event Horizon. Uh, I think I said those in descending order of how good they are. But he is good. Nice, but don't forget you must do Dead Calm at some point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dead Calm is great. And that has, does that have uh, Billy Zane, Dean Cain's alter ego? Uh, not his alter ego. That's the, yeah, Cain or Zane. Zane. We, I don't, have we done a Billy Zane movie? I don't think we have. No, no, I haven't. Uh, but, uh, but uh, if you told someone a very uh, irresponsible version of the synopsis, um, sad drifter Sam Neill uh, goes into the woods with an orphan. You would assume it was a horror movie. Yeah, yeah I mean, I don't know if he's a drifter. <laughs> I they, they when they talk about his backstory, they make it sound like he was a total fucking mess. Oh yeah, until, earlier, until but I mean, saved. yeah, and it feels like yeah, twenty. He's been twenty years, yeah, and he's regressing into his drifter lifestyle. Yes. <laughs> yeah, give him the beat boy and uh, free his soul. <laughs> How did he snatch such a babe is what I want to know. Uh, well, he is still he's still Sam Neill, what, a person who almost played James Bond. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, he's a he's a good looking guy in his, you know, the first movie I saw him in. He's a good looking guy. Was it? It's got to be. I think the first movie I saw him in was definitely in Jurassic Park. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Was, like, after, Don't forget Jurassic Park. That's horror-esque as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a horror movie. Yeah, I mean, that was after a, he shook off a lot of his, in his 20s, particularly in the movie Possession, he's yeah. terrifying looking. Like, when he's really young, oh like pre, yeah. pre, pre-Jurassic Park, he's terrifying looking. He doesn't have any of that, that like, warm, fatherly kind of quality he has as Alan Grant. Liddy, have you seen Possession? 
No, it's it's a blind spot for me. So I. Oh yeah, like yeah. it's uh, it's unfortunately extremely difficult to watch, and as such, is uh, sometimes hard to recommend. You basically have to buy the Blu-ray from this like boutique label that only produces uh, Z- the Zulowinski, the person who directed it to yeah, movies. Zulowski. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he is, he's so good in like these horror movies. I did, uh, Lydia, what was the first movie that you saw him in if it wasn't Jurassic Park? Um, Dead Calm. Oh, Dead Calm. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's the, I mean, Billy Zane's the crazy person there. He's just trying to go on a, a honeymoon with uh, Nicole Kid- Kidman in her like either first or second film role after B- second after BMX Bandits. Um, oh, BMX Bandits. <laughs> yeah. Another another New Zealand or Australia film. Uh, so, yeah. So this one, like, I was – and I, uh, well, actually, yeah, let, me, let me back up a little. I also feel like Sam Neill is someone, Peter, and I, I think we've probably talked about this, is not only is, is he, like, one of our favorite boys, but he feels like someone who has essentially just not had much to do in the last 15 or 20 years. Like – uh, you know, I remember he was in like a J.J. Abrams lost uh, ripoff Alcatraz for like 15 episodes. And I'm like, ooh, I don't really want to watch this, but it's got Sam Neill. But I guess uh, – and he's in a TV show on ABC. I should give it a chance, but it was canceled before. Uh, I had a chance to think otherwise. He was in kind of the um, – uh, 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 back when miniseries were still a big thing, he played Merlin at the end of the the nineteen nineties on the like it was like NBC or whatever like big you know promoted event. That. Yeah, I, I remember liking it quite a bit as a kid. Um, but it feels like there just hasn't been much that you saw Sam Neill in, and so uh, you know when I saw that he was going to be in Hunt for the Wilder People, a movie that I was like aware of before it came out, because at that point. Uh, what we do in the shadows had come out. I kind of pieced together that what TT was responsible for one of my favorite things, uh, Flight of the Concords, or partially responsible for one of my favorite things. So I was I was just super excited uh, to see this movie. Not only because it was again a follow up to a director that I liked, but mainly because it had Sam Neill in the lead role. Here I wanted to cover this movie because a little bit more than your name, because I feel like it fits a piece of the puzzle that we haven't spoken about, which is watchability. Uh, your name, while uh, very heartwarming and sweet and beautiful, it's not like a hyper watchable movie. Like it's actually very like uh, stressful and and uh, sad and and demanding. Uh, and while it gets gets you to where you need to go, like I, I thought that would be better covered in a different month hunt for the wilder people is a movie i've seen like four times now like it's it's a comfort comedy it's for me. definitely a com- like a comfort i was just telling my husband i could see myself watching this as like a comfort food type film yeah and that's why i've seen it so many times is because like i love spending time with ricky i love spending time with heck dire dark themes but and balances it with comedy but i don't think it betrays either half one thing i really love about uh a lot of taika waititi's work particularly in his his other uh you know large new zealand based movie or i guess what we do in the shadows is a bigger movie than either of these but boy his willingness to depict poverty i guess at the fringes sort of lifestyle um, but without fetishizing it, 
without throwing in a bunch of stereotypes or markers, without becoming a parody of itself. Um, and like he's somebody who clearly like understands what it's like to to live in New Zealand because it's a it's a fairly small country. I think you know you can you can probably surmise about how other people live in uh, other parts of the country with you. But also because he's just he has a very humanist soul, and even in movies like Boy. Um, or movies like What We Do in the Shadows, like characters are rarely just villains or rarely just creeps. Um, he, he likes to he likes to understand the underlying motivations for why people act the way that, that they do. Um, I think I think that's fair because um, it actually makes a lot of sense. I don't know if we talked about it from that perspective, but um, you know, regardless of what you may uh, think about some of the movies on the list, I do think that Brigsby Bear. Inside Out and Field of Dreams have a bunch of heartwarming moments throughout where your name, you're right, it's stressful, it's sad, and then it essentially gets to that point that you have a catharsis where this is a movie that, um, while it definitely, I think, uh, isn't as sentimental as those movies, even Brigsby Bear, which um, I think is a a little more – is definitely less sentimental than Inside Out or Field of Dreams – Definitely by the last 20 minutes kind of really wears its heart on its sleeve. And this this one is a little more removed from uh, kind of giving you that full, like, warm embrace, even if it kind of exists for the characters. I think I think it is deeply sentimental, but the you're, you're right. There is a contrast there in that characters aren't characters aren't necessarily like yeah at the end of the movie when heck and uh and ricky are hugging um ricky kind of takes a half step and pauses before hugging him and heck take needs an extra second before he puts his arm around ricky and like ricky sort of needs to convince him to come live with him but like that's all just people who have had the world shit on them for most of their yeah. life and so they're like very apprehensive um, to showing that kind of outward sentimentality, even in times where they are like at the end of the movie, Heck reads Ricky a poem about how much the movie meant to them. Like that is that's the definition of the movie, their journey meant to them. Um, that's like the <laughs> definition of sentimentality. But it, you can tell that it's like taking a lot out of Heck to do that. Yeah, I I don't want to say like it's devoid of emotion, but it has that kind of removed sentimentality that I think a lot of like Australian and kind of I'll put it under a broader umbrella that kind of British sense of humor, the stiff upper lip stuff, right? Where it just that's true. It, it's there, but it 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 even Brigsby Bear, which is coming from like a place of like anti comedy and like mean comedy as a like a as a origins, which we talked about last week, like it still has the moment where at the end he walks into the theater and everyone's standing up and applauding, you know, and patting him on the back. And, you know, it, it, it feels a lot more like it's give the characters on screen are giving you that kind of like, Oh my gosh, I just want to hug everyone around me and, and cry for a little bit moment where even though obviously like Ricky and hack you, you feel uh, their bond, you feel that they've both been through a lot. You see a sense of recognition, a sense of like, you know, like, you know, that kind of like mentorship type or parental love by the end of the movie. It's still like, you know, it's still it's still coming from mm-hmm. two people who are, uh, you know, are coming from a place of of uh, reserve being being reserved and almost, you know, have have kind of spent their life in some ways afraid to express emotion. And even though. 
you know, through their journey, they're they're coming out of that. They're you know, their end. It's like, well, you're not so bad, I guess. Yeah, and, and you know, that's that's the same as like the the applause in some ways that uh, that that they get at the when he walks into the theater at the end of uh, Brigsby Bear, just because it, it's not it's not necessarily giving you the big moments, but it's telling you the same thing in littler moments. Yeah, and I I, I think um, what Taika Waititi is doing is like getting, yeah, he's getting to those moments, but um, with a sort of guarded apprehension against against easy sentiment, um, which I think helps the movie avoid anything that that feels cloying or treacly to me. Um, And and, uh, yeah, because it, it feels like he wants to create a situation where he's like, (laughs) <laughs> he's not dumping water on you, right? He's like gradually weakening a dam until you're just it, the dam lets go, right? Um, which is like a very different sort of approach. Um, whereas, like usually, like you know, um, like a say, like a Lifetime movie, we're just joking about, like that's gonna throw a little cup of water in your face every eight seconds. <laughs> like it's not like particular. You know, you're being manipulated. It like, probably oh, isn't they named the dog well. after the dead grandpa. Yeah, <laughs> we never met the dead grandpa. We just saw the dog for the first time, but I get it. <laughs> oh, they bought grandpa's house for him. Um, like it's all that kind of like it, it's it's sort of like those easy. They're not spending a lot of time building up the characters. They're not spending a lot of time building up the moments. They're just sort of giving you the moments. And like I'm not saying that those that's necessarily like, you know, uh without value. Um but I'm saying that uh when you I'm saying a very simple and boring thing, which is that if you put work into it, uh it's more satisfying when it hits. Um and I feel like the end of this movie is like that's when I'm like I just am I'm filled with this like warm sense of humanity that like I, you know, is specifically in um the second week of February in 2021 was not feeling at all from the world. Yeah, I think I, I think that makes a lot of sense. It also kind of makes a lot of sense from what we talked about in our Field of Dreams episode. Like, you know, Peter, I part of the reason I thought this month would be fun to do is that when you and I first started this podcast, uh, now about five years ago, when we and when we first started talking before that you rarely had an emotional impact on movies and, and, and or sorry, you, it's true that you didn't usually have an emotional impact on the movie. I watched them dead eyed. Yeah. (laughs) None of my Blu-rays were emotionally affected after I watched them. I didn't see one cry. One yelled at me once, but I was also doing some peyote. I feel Um, the same emotion looking at the screen of the theater as I do looking at the bare eggshell walls. (laughs) But uh, they weren't really affecting you that much. And you said, I don't cry at movies. That's what you kind of talked about. And then now, five years later, you talk about how uh, that you you tend to get affected more often by stuff you're watching on the screen. But like, and I'm, I'm not saying this is the case. I do think that I definitely, you know, there was a time where it felt like I just watched so many of those movies growing up that were designed to make you cry by the end that like this this type of movie even though it wasn't a type of this you know obviously i didn't see this movie when i was in high school and college but that kind of like um well i'm gonna use high fidelity as a as a touch point like high fidelity like a lot of people connected to me when it came out when in 2000 when i was 17 and one of the reasons it connected with me was this idea of like a almost uh an uh antithetical to like a say anything movie which i really liked which was the 
I, I did really like Say Anything, but that was a movie about I met this girl and I'm in love with her and here's all the things I'm going to do. And and High Fidelity at the time felt different to me because it still had this idea that like, you know, that uh, that there was love to be had in the world and in relationships and stuff like that. But it wasn't as simple as uh, – it's just, uh, you know, I put up a boombox and play Peter Gabriel and said it was it was messy and in some ways a lot of times like just unsentimental and that was for a seventeen year old I don't think I had seen a movie like that before and it felt more but I had been in you know high school relationships but somewhat longer high school relationships and so um, you know there was a there was a recognition of what a year into a relationship feels like when you're wondering if you guys should break up or something like that while still feeling like the ending had a lot of sentiment to it. And so I, I can, so a movie like this specifically, I think, especially if I would have seen in high school and college when I was more likely to kind of reject open sentiment or like Disney sentiment type stuff. uh, I think, I think it would have hit me in a certain way. And I'm, I'm not trying to cast a bunch of like, again, uh, aspersions on you, Peter, or, or even saying there's anything wrong with all that. But I imagine as someone who is growing more affected by open sentimentality in movies, that this movie especially is kind of designed for you, and especially when it came out in 2016, when you were more likely to say, yeah, I I get it. It's nice. I don't cry at movies. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably fair. Also, like, uh, <laughs> The uh, the people that that uh, my older siblings that raised me um, were closer to Gen X, so uh, I think that's sort of like uh, having feelings is dumb kind of approach. To, yeah, to things like the high fidelity thing, particularly resonates with me. This idea that like uh, sincerity is only uh, sincerity is only cool if it's deeply aggressive. <laughs> um, so that 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 definitely resonated with me. I don't know, L- Lydia. What do you what do you think? Like, what movies? feel warm to you what what makes you cry what like are there movies that make you cry like what do you think about all this oh my goodness before i was a parent and you know nothing affected me but now if anything happens to a child i'm like "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) you know there was um one particular movie that was like why am i so upset um uh gone baby gone oh yeah, yeah 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 that i don't know that was really upsetting for me you know, so I think parent and child relationships or, you know, harm done to, to children's like Pet Cemetery never bothered me yeah. before. That just I cannot. It bothers me so much now. I've heard I've heard this. I've heard this. My brother-in-law told me this as well, that like all of a sudden uh, he's like, I don't know what happened. I had some kids. The kids got a little older. And then all of a sudden I was watching a movie like on a date night and like a kid was getting beat up. And I was like, what are we? I paid to watch this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Lydia, I don't know if your kids ever ask you, uh, my my oldest, who is uh, turning seven here in a couple of months, you know, she is t- she talks about fears a lot. She likes scary movies, uh, even, you know, scary movies for like a probably 13-year-old she watches. Uh, and uh, – but she, but she doesn't get scared by that. But, like, she doesn't like ants. She doesn't like spiders. Um, she's not scared by the concept of those things. Like, she reads books about ants and spiders and find them interesting. But just, like, when she sees one out in the world, she doesn't she doesn't like it. And she asks me a lot, like, 
um, what what my greatest fear is, and uh, and I tell her like my greatest fear at this point in my life, really my only like major fear besides like lose my job, how can we afford stuff? But that still comes back to the same place, which is like oh something happening to you or your sister, like that's that is. Anything else that I was scared of before just feels so so tiny compared to it. So, yeah, when you're watching movies when, like, kids are in danger or something terrible happens to a kid or, you know, you, you just can't help be like, man, this is, this is the worst possible thing I can imagine. Uh, and it's happening on screen. Yeah, and especially, like, with this movie, I know that um, it probably hits harder for maybe somebody who's – been a foster child or uh, a parent um, who has a mentorship or a son. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the on the on the show, but um, uh, my my parents were foster parents growing up, and they um, we we had they had so between the ages of like two and five, I lived in a group home that my parents ran. They both have their degrees in like social work. Oh wow. Um, so yeah, so we lived in I call it, just called it the group home in Kalispell, Montana, and uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, so and then I guess you know I just didn't think much of it at the time, and then when we moved to North Dakota and they had four kids of their own, they decided they were ready to to foster, and so uh, so we fostered someone on and off for three years because sometimes they would uh, her name was Crystal and she would sometimes. Um, uh, have to go to the group home for a little bit or go to like, you know, uh, some things that I wasn't, I was, he, she was 15 and 16, 17 when she was with us and I was probably like 10. So I definitely got more out of it, more, more understood more of what was going on, I think, uh, than my other siblings as I was the oldest, but I probably didn't like realize the extent. I do remember like visiting her in the, what they called, you know, the psych ward of the hospital on the fourth floor. Um, I think potentially after a suicide attempt. So, oh wow. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I definitely re- there's a lot in this movie that I recognize, but specifically about like kind of the Rachel House. Uh, the, okay, got it. In oh, the, so, the, the social the, worker. The, the social worker. So what I mean by that, like, I definitely recognize a lot of Ricky in, in Crystal. I think that kind of like, you know, she had been in a lot of houses. Her, her, She had a mom. Her mom was just not fit to to take care of her and stuff like that. Um, but I very much recognize that idea of adults who are uh, um, ostensibly there to help, who also are just dealing with kind of a like their job and the process of their job has become helping you know uh, foster kids or you know um kids without you know parents or whatever else um i'm I'm dancing around i'm not sure if juvenile delinquence is the right word anymore although i guess that's that's what they used when i was growing up um so i i apologize at risk kids is probably at risk risk yeah (laughs) yeah the better term I guess probably just foster kids from the past decade. (laughs) Yeah, um, but I definitely recognize, like, like looking back at that time through the the lens of adulthood and seeing it, like, in this movie, I definitely see like Rachel House is very funny and very good, but she is her job is these like kids, these foster kids. You find them homes. They're the more trouble they are, 
the harder her job is. And if you think about, like, jobs that you've had, you know, I think that uh, where, like, when, um, you know, if you are working with clients or something like that, like I do, sometimes the clients who are the most difficult to work with are people that you are, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, they're, they're not people that you're like, I just need to love them harder, <laughs> you know, <They're, laughs> because it's, it's your, it's your job. And even though like going squeaky into, wheel gets the grease, but you still fucking hate that wheel. Yeah. Like, and so when, when your job becomes dealing with these like, uh, underprivileged or, or foster kids, like, I think it's easy for them to just be, become a part of your day and your process. And that was something that, like I said, Looking looking back, um, although I, I remember having a lot of conversations that ended feeling like I asked my questions at the time and and didn't understand, and even while she ended up not being in our home anymore, and you know, and to not give my parents too much credit, it just felt like at some point it just was like, yeah, this is too hard. Like there's just a lack of, I don't know what the right way to say it is. It feels like there's a lack of like overall commitment in a lot of cases not all cases I'm, I I know that there's a lot of great like you know foster parents and stuff like that but that kind of idea of this kid's been to many homes and like you see that in a lot of like you know fiction around this kind of stuff like a family who's like okay this is gonna be the home that that finally works out and then you know six weeks later they're like yeah I don't know. We 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 lost some sleep one night, and so I guess we're kind of out. You know, where let's. I think that's probably a a, a part of this movie that is maybe um, maybe missing. Um, is while Rachel House's character of you know the child welfare agent um, yeah. is very funny as like a comedy character. Um, I think the movie probably could have used a scene or two with, between her and Andy where they she explains her like how she got to where this point where like these kids are just like uh an aggressive project for her and aren't aren't even necessarily children and that this journey becomes an action movie she gets to put herself in and not she even calls ricky the package at the end like in military terms like she so i it's no longer like she it's no longer a kid that she took on for you know what what at some point might have been very you know um uh, uh, emotionally charged or very personal or, you know, more um, charitable or humanitarian reasons, uh, whatever it may be. Um, at this point, that kid is just like, that's something I got to get done. <laughs> well, I actually think the movie does a good job of that. Like, I I mean, for, I guess from my uh, – it, it's done through the lens of like a lightness and a comedy. But, you know, um, it's still like the – like that scene where – she goes on the news, right? And, then, and and the local news is like, well, he must be really scared. I mean, ultimately, this kid is just a kid, right? And she's like, he's not just a kid. You know, I'm not going to do the accent. I can't do the accent. Um, he's but, not just a kid. He's, uh, but, but uh, you know, he's like, he's committed robberies. And, and, like, and, the, and like, the news people seem like really like – you are so far gone from what we expected this conversation. Like this kid is still 15 years old and lost in, in the woods. And I, and you're just listing his crimes 
as a way of like I don't know. I love how spitting is always. She always says spitting. She always has to say spitting, which isn't a crime. It just probably feels annoying, and it's an annoyance that she's had to deal with. So like it's again, it's it's definitely this is not like a serious look into how making uh, finding homes for children into a job uh, on both ends, people both receiving and uh, the children as foster homes. Um, and then, like, can lead to this kind of callousness towards, the, you know, these children who need more love and more chances and more understanding and, like, people that are not just willing to take a kid into their home, but to willing to, like, consistently do the work. Like, the the fact that kids go to so many different foster homes because parents can't – you know, the foster parents can't handle it, I think – and again <laughs> – I, I'm speaking from a very like limited perspective of what I saw for years, but I um and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are both, you know, do you know, that are social workers that would have a lot to say about it, but it feels like like what why are you even signing up for this if you're not willing to do a little bit of the work? Like I get like if the kid is like you know, causing violence or danger in the home or something like that, which is, you know, that 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 maybe that that's not the right place, but I mean, it's going to be a little bit more work. That's kind of why, theoretically, you're signing up for it. And it it feels like people are very quick to go, uh, well, we're going to do this eight times. And once we can't find a home, you're here. And this kid is not a child to me. He's just a, a thing I need to solve. And then once once I'm done with my job, I go through my process. If this kid, Ricky, uh, isn't where he needs to be, he just goes to juvie in jail. And then I guess – Check off the list onto the other kid. And I think she does do a good job of, and I think it's written to portray that as, uh, I mean, very almost uh, uh, a parody of callousness, which is what it ultimately, I think, is, which is why it's funny. She's a stand in for the system, right? That yeah. the, the system is ill equipped to handle these kids. And just because we see that all place, the time, it may, it may place them in, um, and they place them in the right home sometimes. It doesn't mean that it's doing so out of a sense of compassion or the individual yeah. people are not doing so out of a sense of compassion. And like, you know, where the blame ultimately lies there isn't necessarily on social workers or whatever. It's because the system yeah. itself is is, is uh, underfunded or the system itself is, is poorly structured or uh, fr- frankly, like the, the rest of the um, – the the rest of the the systems that it ties into like uh you know you were talking about like uh healthcare systems and yeah. um you know psychiatric care facilities like our, our general are- justice and prison system especially in the United yes. States and yes and stuff um, like that yeah I, I I think that's right like and I don't want to cast aspersions on social workers at all because or people that have devoted their life to this but like I do get that there's a little bit of a, a callousness to like you know I I remember. Um, and this is probably getting super, super actually like serious and we'll transition to the movie. But like, I do remember like my parents having conversations with like the, the, the social workers who kind of ran the foster program being like, and then she, you know, she, you know, we had a new, we have a six month old baby and she left and we had to spend all night, you know, and my husband has to wake up at work in the morning trying to track her down and stuff like that. And it's like, we just can't do this. And it's like, well, why the fuck did you take on a foster kid then? You know, like that was even now, like, even though I think my parents were well-intentioned, um, and I think a lot of people in this situation are well-intentioned, there is kind of a like, yeah, 
you might if if that is an inconvenience to you you maybe shouldn't have a foster kid right now <laughs> you know and so and so that there's a there's anytime you see these movies where like um where like a kid like Ricky is like on his last possible home it rings like a truth like what why were what were they expecting that they that he was rejected and i think that's why when um you know when uh the auntie dies at the beginning of this movie like it feels like such an immediate loss because this does feel like the type of person who actually was in the program for the right reasons and who really understood you know what it meant to sign up to take to take care of a kid who hasn't been shown love in the way that a kid should before mm-hmm. and, and uh the fact that the um the fact that after you know bella dies that the means of notification that uh ricky may is probably moving um is definitely moving is because uh it's just like a letter like uh nope sorry like this this home doesn't work anymore uh for whatever reason hector is disqualified maybe he didn't try it's hard to tell it's sort of he's he doesn't he probably didn't pass any of the stuff that's required he's or a former have convict. the degree in social work i'm not saying that's the worst move in the world <laughs> yeah <laughs> right? he's a former convict and like bella was yeah. considered the primary guardian and like yeah. you know if she had interviewed heck i don't think heck would have passed either <laughs> but the fact that he just got a letter telling him that it just shows you that like uh, the system is both trying to get rid of the kid, but also um, uh, uh, is is also not trying that hard to make placement work. No, there wasn't even a visit. There wasn't. They didn't even visit to yeah. s- ask him what he, or notify him. Yeah, yeah. Um, which yeah, of course letter. creates the whole uh, the whole scenario that we're going to talk about. So, uh, do you two want to talk about Hunt for the Wilder People? this podcast uh co-host what's some other titles bro host <laughs> no very specifically <laughs> very specifically not that bro brost um, brost 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 uh it sounds um, like a there's a boar in this movie maybe boar host boar host okay boar host uh your alternate taglines oh am i yeah that was that's what all that lead up was. I thought if I said enough nice things, maybe you'd get into it. Uh no. No, I, I wasn't going to. Um alternate taglines. A helpful conspiracy theorist. Y- you think uh you think Murray ended up being a QAnon guy? Not I mean that's not his character's name. It's Psycho Psycho Sam. Psycho Sam. Bush Man. Bush <laughs> Man. Um, <laughs> I I want to know how many I I I, I want to be like hunt for the wilder people. This paid for five pigs on Sam Hill's farm, <laughs> <laughs> or how much just brush? That guy loves taking pictures of brush. He loves it. He loves it. Um, that was something we didn't really talk about when we were talking about Sam Neil. Maybe we start there before we get to the the recap. Um, sure. Sam Neil, born in Northern Ireland, had like Kiwi. Uh, ancestry and then at seven moved to new zealand proper 
Um, and he sort of identifies as a, as a Kiwi, identifies as a New Zealander. Um, but yeah, he's like kind of got like UK, Ireland, New Zealand citizenship. And he was on a sitcom in Australia. So like, I didn't know until we, somebody who like, I've seen a lot of Sam Neill movies and I love him and I consider him one of my favorite actors. I didn't know until we were researching for the show that he has like, <laughs> many countries claim to think that Sam Neill is theirs. Uh, yeah. I mean, and he gets honored he... as an Irish actor. Sometimes he gets honored as a Kiwi actor. He also is like a keep, like he was on some big sitcoms in Australia or big, you know, television shows, I should say. I, well, that's <laughs> good because before this movie, I don't know if I would have called him funny, but he definitely is. <laughs> I'm trying to think of there's other comedies that i had seen him in i mean i don't think oh. jurassic park is funny but he's he has funny lines in it i mean i'm pretty sure i did see it last year even though normally when you think of music you think of like musical comedy like the the gold the famous golden globe best picture category but i i don't think the piano is that funny <laughs> he's he is funny in um in the mouth of madness that movie has like yeah. a, a weirdly light touch for how heavy it is. Yeah, like there's a lot of scenes that are played as outright comedy. Uh, that that's very true. Yeah, so hunt for the and I realized we never got to uh, Taika. Said we just talked about I guess my experience with my parents being foster parents, but we we can get back to Taika here after a a very quick recap. So essentially, you have uh, a kid named Ricky. Who, uh, Ricky Baker, Ricky Baker, uh, who is a, a, a system kid, right? Like they don't really talk about his parents much in this movie. Um, he does, you know, he's basically spent his life, uh, in, in the foster program and, uh, he has experienced other kids in that foster program who, uh, ends up being important to him, right? Like a kid who, uh, seems pretty formative that kept saying that she was worried that she wasn't going to be able to go on. And then all of a sudden she just didn't go on anymore. She died. He doesn't know why. And so he's kind of like, you know, doing what a lot of kids that feel, feel untethered do, which is, you know, uh, uh, do minor crimes, stealing, running away from their foster homes. Uh, you know, probably some combination of, uh, attention, but also just, uh, if, if these are the people that are telling me not to do, these things uh these people suck and so i'm gonna go out of my way to do these things um and so he ends up though at the beginning of the movie uh on a farm with heck and lily uh lily heck is a is a former bushman <laughs> i think is fair to say um who has a dog he has a beard he's not friendly um lily is very warm and open and can't wait says you know that you found your forever home uh and ricky treats it immediately like uh not his forever home as as he you know he tries to run away they are kind of in the middle of the bush in the middle of the new zealand wilderness and uh so he the first night there he runs away he ends up about 200 feet from the house in a very funny scene uh and then goes Cause, to yeah because usually when he would run away in the city because he's a city mouse yep. yeah he'd get pretty far yeah, but here, like, how? where are you going to go? And so he doesn't get very far. Uh, and so Lily's like, well, okay, well, you can run away every night as long as you 
are here for breakfast and very quickly like a, a great little rapport develops where they show them around like how they live out in their in their life in the in the in the country mouse life uh, includes a hilarious scene of them uh, of Lily finding a, a boar and slaughtering it uh, in all of its gory detail much to the like shock of Ricky to the point that he faints but that's how they live out there <laughs> Yeah, this is a kid who this is a kid who's used to seeing pork as like bacon, <laughs> not as yeah. like, you know farm animals. You know, well, and also he does you know he does what a lot of kids does. He he sees himself as a tough, right, a street tough, and so I think you know he immediately is confronted by something that he doesn't have the stomach for. Uh, that just seems like a normal way of life for for Lily and Hack. So Hack never really warms up to him. Uh, Hack has a dog. They decide to get him a dog for his, uh, I think, 16th birthday or 15th birthday. Sorry. 15th birthday. And all of a sudden, like, you get the sense that he is at, he is at home. And the day uh, – and uh, and Lily says, um, hey, if you're going to run away tonight, here's what we're going to do tomorrow. And he's like, yeah. He kind of gives that, like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to run away. Um, uh, and so uh, – and so what ends up happening is uh, – um, the next morning, unfortunately, Lily is, dies, uh, wakes up to ha- crying over her body, uh, unknown reasons. Um, they never really, I don't think they, they mentioned, but I mean, one would assume like a stroke or heart attack, something sudden that comes out of, comes out of nowhere. Um, yeah, she's and just laying it, in a field. Yep. Uh, and then, the, you know, they kind of cut to the funeral, uh, where, uh, Taika Watiti is a very funny minister. <laughs> Um, he really has like we we can talk a little bit about his acting at some point, but man, he just has a way around a line that makes everything he say says funny. Um, when he's talking about all the different doors and yeah, sometimes Jesus is behind them. Like at a very sad moment in the movie, it does add this this sense of ridiculous levity. Uh, but Hack is so distraught and also recognizing the minister is just saying nonsense. He leaves, uh, and they find a letter. They get a letter. Uh, you find a letter Hack can't read, but he does ask Ricky to read it. That basically says, "Sorry about your loss. We'll be coming to get Ricky uh, in the next few days." Uh, and and so Ricky says that he doesn't want to. He's like he's finally find a pl- place that he's comfortable. And Heck said, "I'm going to go bush," which means I have nothing tethered to this house anymore. I'm going to go and kind of do a, a a walkabout uh, in in the wilderness for a little bit. Disappear for a little bit in the wilderness. Um, before that has a chance to happen, or, or he has a chance to do that. After Ricky decides to truly run away, he takes his dog Tupac. And he goes out in the wilderness and he decides that that's what he's going to do. He also fakes he, his own death very poorly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He he sets uh, – he, he, he writes a, a fake suicide note in the bar – leaves it in the barn um, and then uh, is trying to burn his own body but immediately sets – you know, put gasoline in this wood shack, burns the whole thing down immediately. The funniest part of that in case we don't come back is that for he draws a face on his – on his cl- uh, on a, on a metal plate, and so even though they see all the the burned uh, clothes and the remains, the metal plate with his face with a with a face drawn on it is is not burnt, and very quickly reveals that he this was not him. Um, uh, so anyway, so while he's out in the wilderness, Heck finds him and is like, "What are you doing? We need to go back." In the meantime. Uh, while there's a little bit of a fight because Ricky is saying some things about how Heck is terrible and Heck is saying some things about Ricky's terrible, uh, 
uh, Hack breaks his ankle. Uh, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They basically have to stay there for six weeks and recover. They get to know each other more. Hack has to teach Ricky about a lot of things about living in the bush and surviving. Uh, and after six weeks, uh, they're healed. They go to a little, I don't know what you call it, like a like a park ranger station or something like that, hunting station. Yeah, it's, it's essentially, it's like, you know, it's like a... It's like a cabin that they have in certain checkpoints in wilder areas, just basically so you can, like, get a roof over your head if, like, your equipment has failed you or you went out completely unprepared. There's some yeah. bunks. There's a uh, gas gas uh, uh, um, range. It's kind of super basic. And then, like, you know, you could presumably call park rangers if, if the place has a phone. Yeah. Um, and while they're there, they notice there's a wanted poster on the assumption that heck went crazy and kidnapped Ricky and now they're out in the woods uh, and they immediately some hunters walk in and uh, Ricky says a bunch of stuff that accidentally implies that he's being molested by Heck um, and that he made me do things. He's describing chores but the hunters assume there's something more nefarious going on and uh, and so they they don't know what they're going to do and so they end up getting into a scuffle. They take their guns. They knock them out. And then they leave. And this is kind of a for, – for a point in these types of movies, it's really um, interesting in that Hack, the adult in the situation, also feels like the world has gotten far beyond his control. And so he kind of is like, I guess we will have to hide in the bush uh, and live out in the wilderness because if I go back, I have a prior for my manslaughter when I was a kid. I'm going to go to jail. And also you don't – you he talks about that he tells that story of that girl he knew who basically died as a result of the foster home foster parents the system not not taking her concerns or where she was at seriously and heck goes yeah i guess this is probably the best thing for the both of us so that leads to like the the next 45 minutes of the movie where they are basically trying to trying trying to uh survive out in the middle of the bush um they're being pursued by the police and the social workers. Um, it becomes a national news story in New Zealand that these kids are missing. They kind of become a celebrity. There's a point where um, they they run across a ranger station and there's someone who's in a diabetic shock. Um, and they risk their own capture to basically call and get him help. Meanwhile, Ricky uh, meets meets a girl his own age. Um, it has a we'll, – we'll probably talk about that moment. A little more great, great, wonderful moment. Uh, but the dad – that is supposed to be the dad, right? I was – this is like the fourth time I've seen this, but now I was questioning if it was the brother. But – Yeah, it's supposed to be the dad. He's just supposed to be kind of a, you know, an, a little bit of a numbskull, a little immature. <laughs> yeah. Uh, numbskull is the perfect uh, descriptor. But ask for selfies that he posts on the internet with uh, – with with Ricky, uh, but they you know they get separate uh, when when he stays a little bit too long when he gets back hex gone. But that that actually starts to to change the narrative a little bit in the media landscape where there are these these folk heroes that are living out in the wilderness who saved a person's life at the risk to themselves. And um, eventually it comes to the head though, right? Like they can't they can't stay out there forever. They uh, they 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 meet Psycho Sam who uh, Psycho in an attempt. Sam. Who uh, played by Murray from Flight of the Concords. Um He actually has a name that's not Murray, although I will never not think of him as Murray because I did watch all of Flight of the Concords. 
Peter, are you the person that has told me now? I, I hate to derail this with other things you don't like that you don't really like Flight of the Concords. It's not that I dislike it. I like it. It's just it's not like it's not like something I'm, uh, you know, uh, ecstatically enthusiastic about the way that like a lot of people were. It also has a little bit of that um, we, we talked about in Palm Springs. Uh, it has a little bit of that Lonely Island thing where like the most annoying people in the world were obsessed with it and wouldn't stop talking to me about it. So I Fair. was like, so I was like repelled a little bit, but it's really good. And I love both of them. G- glad, glad we didn't know each other in 2008 when that's all I talked about. I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah, rise Darby is his name. Uh, and he's fantastic as this kind of person who's lived out in the bush for like 16 years. And he's also crafted a narrative around himself as like, uh, this guy who has like a reputation as a psycho, but no one knows who he is, uh, which which is a f- fun little character detail. He's just a weird love. white guy that lives out in the, like he's he's yeah. not and like uh, he he's also somebody who like has uh, clearly uh, not all of his pieces are there because there's a moment when he's like, "We'll go to the bomb shelter," and then like he's like, "I haven't dug it yet." Like uh, he, he has like ambitions of being a, a more of a weirdo than he actually is. Well, I think that's why uh, – so how they get caught is that he is trying to crack their cell phones, like, to do cool, I don't know, hacker things that I guess, like, maybe he saw too much of the X-Files and thought he was one of the lone gunmen. But instead, because they're tracking the cell phones, um, he just gets them caught. Um, and so in a last-ditch effort to escape, they take his truck for this wonderful uh, chase scene across the bush, uh, ultimately get cornered in kind of a junkyard. And uh, Ricky still just is like, I can't like I don't have anything to go back to. It's not even that I'm running away is that this is the only time in my life I've ever felt happy. Um, And so through the through the kind of uh, chaos ends up shooting hack. um, And then you kind of flash forward that hack uh, is in a halfway house. He did some jail time that I. All was not forgiven, but I probably had a lot of charges reduced and and dropped based on a lot of different circumstances. Um, And and Ricky explaining how they ended out up there in the first place. Um, And yeah, and and they also – at some point they saw a bird that they sought to be extinct, which is important for the end. That basically they go and visit. Ricky has a home now. um, That he uh, invites Heck to live at and they go out in the bush to try to find that bird. That they saw together Um, and both kind of finding uh, kind of finding uh, familiar relationships uh, in each other two people that uh, were in no way interested in forming that bond uh, to begin with. It's kind of a beautiful ending because in a sense at the end of the movie uh, Ricky gets two families like he has a family that he's living with proper but he also has hack is like uh, an uncle figure like more of like a it's it's even. You know, it's 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 a father figure in one sense, but it's almost just like he's now grown the sense of independence and Hack is there to um, reinforce that independence. Right. Like I'm going to teach you how to do things and you're and, you know, you're going to help um, keep my education going um in, in in more ways than one right like i i'm saying this in very sentimental terms because like that's the point like um not just that you're gonna help me with my literacy but like i have become cold to the earth i only yeah. opened my world for for bella um oh that, sorry i keep calling her lily 
Yeah, I didn't catch that at all. So, okay. um, so if you heard me say Lily, it is Bella. Uh, um, just edit, find, edit, replace, please. <laughs> it's as easy as that. Um, but uh, it's one of those things where sometimes we get Bella. criticism on the show for not knowing everything. Uh, and I got to tell you, uh, first of all, it's hard to remember everything when you just talk a lot for a couple hours at night. Uh, and then two, Peter, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Pardon the Interruption. Probably not because it's a sports show on on. Uh, no, I haven't then. on ESPN. Yeah. They're two guys that their entire life is knowing about sports, and uh, they talk for twenty minutes about a bunch of different topics. And at the end of the show, there's a guy, Tony Reilly, Riley, Reilly, I think it's Reilly, Reilly, who uh, corrects them on all the mistakes they made for the last twenty minutes. Uh, and we don't have that, so I'm sorry. I called Bella Lily. <laughs> but it's both two syllables uh, also any podcast it's like and i mean we need to correct the record here and here from last week i'm like guys you're not a here's the thing journal. yeah if you if you were listening and you knew i was wrong good for you you know more than me go host your own show <laughs> so uh lydia it was your first time seeing this yes I, I feel like sometimes i don't know your your history with like this specific like uh, we'll call it just British sense of humor, stiff upper lip type humor. The woman who plays Bella, I had actually seen her in another New Zealand film called um, Housebound. Oh, Housebound's great. Great movie. Great. Love that movie. So, so I got excited when I saw her and then I was like, oh my gosh, she's, she, no, she's not in the movie anymore. <laughs> that was quick. Uh, it is weird how quickly they make you attached to Bella and they make you understand why this is such a blow to Ricky and why Ricky needs hack. Because, yeah. like, the movie doesn't really work well if you don't believe that Ricky is attached to Bella because when the movie starts, Ricky hates uh, outdoors. He hates getting his cool trainers covered in mud. He's a gangster. He's a, he, he has the gangster clothes and he names his dog Tupac, so... Yeah, he, he, he wants to get back to... He wants to get back to Auckland, right? He wants to get back to to wherever, you know, he thinks the he can street. do gangster stuff. Yeah, he wants to get back to street life, right? Well, because he wants to do more spitting. He wants to do more spitting, and out in the countryside, it's like, you know, if a tree falls in the woods. Like yeah. If you spit in, if you spit in, in, in the bush... Uh, Nobody cares. They're all doing it. Nobody cares. <laughs> Did it even happen? Yeah, so it was exciting to see that she was in the movie, because I thought she was great in Housebound, but then, you know, Ricky just chews up that scenery, so... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so sweet how, like, they, they establish really quickly. Like, she's alive for literally, like, I think one of the ten chapters plus epilogue. Um, yeah. And oh. essentially, like, there's a very sweet moment where she sings him happy birthday with a little song she wrote for him. With her little keyboard. I, I love that moment. I love it so much because especially, like, it, it shows you how they've grown because Ricky isn't sitting there staring off like, <laughs> you know, he would have the first day. Like, who is this weirdo? Uh, Ricky's starting to sing along once he gets the, the melody. Um, and that's just, a, and Heck is just sitting there kind of un, uh, like awkwardly, like, I, I don't know what's going on here because like they, they have a different relationship than her and Heck have, right? Like she yeah. has two, ha she, her, her, herself is divided between the two of them now. Um, Speaking of, I think in that scene, I, I thought they mentioned that he's 13, like, it's his 13th birthday. That's possible. Julian Dennison just is this, like, adorable little pudgy face, and he just, like, looks like a little baby angel. Um, yes. It's, it's very funny how he's, like, 
actually kind of has a career since 2016. And I don't mean funny in like a, a bad way. I just mean like, it's rad that this, this little New Zealand boy of Maori descent, uh, like a Hollywood career, presumably some sort of LA agent or management because he's in Deadpool 2, Santa Chronicles 2, Godzilla versus King Kong coming up. Like, yeah. Oh, yay. And he's gotten like sizable roles in the first two. I, I bet in the third one he'll be overshadowed by one of the um, titular figures, but he's the <laughs> villain in Santa Chronicles 2. And like, that's like for a kid a, a young kid that's pretty amazing uh, let's talk about taika as well so taika is actually he refers to himself as a polynesian jew um his uh his maternal surname is uh cohen his paternal surname is waititi um so uh he has jewish ancestry um going back to like uh eastern europe and uh he has obviously maori uh, ancestry and it's kind of cool to see this country that um, did suffer under colonialism, um, like just because, uh, you know, Australia had a particularly vicious history with colonialism doesn't mean that uh, New Zealand didn't get their taste of it, too. Um, just they had a very different story. And um, so it's very cool to see this kind of representation for Polynesians um, in Hollywood, right? Like that's got to feel amazing because even within even in new zealand which is a very gentle and very like um far more uh, humanist country than the united states in a lot of ways like look at the way they handled covid um they actually care about death on a grand scale yeah. um th even with all of that like they still have a dark a dark mark of marginalizing the maori people and people of maori descent and into poverty similar to the way that like we do with native americans Anyone who's not white. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, anyone who's not a white guy, basically. So it's kind of interesting. Julian Dennison is like, has a career now, and Taika Waititi is directing fucking Marvel movies. Like, that's that's an amazing, like, point of pride for New Zealand, which is a tiny country. Obviously, Peter Jackson getting the, to come to Hollywood and essentially be an economic driver for New Zealand is, is huge news. But Peter Jackson is like... A white guy. It's it's a it's a different story. Well, and also like so, and and I came to Watiti like on accident. I I didn't know I had come to him. Right, like I really was into Flight of the Concords. Who at the time, you know, when uh, when their HBO debuted, or even before that, when they had an HBO uh, hour long special, uh, HBO Presents, which was fantastic. Um, you know, they, they were kind of billed as like, you know, the, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, New Zealand's third biggest folk rock band. And, <laughs> and, you know, and they had a lot of Lord of the Rings references, like, you know, us from this and stuff like that. And then of course I watched the show, um, Flight of the Concords. And I watched as a result of Flight of the Concords, which ended pretty abruptly after just two seasons, like I, like a lot of people who really liked the show, wanted to see more of the cast. And even though Brett McKenzie really hasn't been in all that much besides like writing music for stuff outside of Concords, uh, Jermaine kind of uh, Jermaine Clement started doing more acting stuff. And so, you know, I tracked down a movie that he was in uh, I think around the same time as Flight of the Concords, or uh, again at the time having no idea who directed it, but I watched Eagle versus Shark when it came out, or like a year after it came out, with the idea of getting Brett McKenzie, not knowing that I just watched my first, you know, Taika Waititi movie. Like it didn't, I wasn't watching it for that. It was also his first movie, 
And it wasn't till um, What We Do in the Shadows came out in 2014, which was a movie that, again, I watched mainly because Jermaine Clement was in it and also just hearing a lot of the wonderful reviews that I realized that, oh, this guy in the movie who's really funny is also the director. I wonder what else he, he's done. And it kind of brought me back to realize that I, I had seen his debut Eagle versus Shark, and that he had, you know, been responsible for a lot of the directing on Flight of the Concords. That I started to get more engaged in in the Watiti part of the Jermaine Clement Taika Watiti uh, divide, and then this was the next next example. And then, yeah, like uh, Peter, you've seen uh, Peter or Lydia? Like I, I'm assuming you guys have seen Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Thor Ragnarok is one thing I really like about like I know we've we've had some discussion on Marvel movies and they're definitely there's definitely a lot. I mean, at this point, there's like 25 of them or whatever, right? There's a lot of thoughts to go around. I think one thing that really made like the phase three of the Marvel movies have most of the best entries was because they let uh, you know they kind of learned maybe the lessons of phase two where they like we're gonna have edgar wright go and direct ant-man and then they're like oh you're making an edgar wright movie we need a marvel movie um and i think they it feels like they loosen that a lot for phase three and you got some you know f- some of probably the best entries of that series including thor ragnarok which i would probably if it's not my favorite it's in my top two or three i don't have a list in front of me but yeah like it is the perfect combination of a a director's sensibilities doing a giant two hundred million dollar twentieth entry or whatever in a in a the biggest franchise in the world. It feels and like it has more DNA with yeah, Flight of the Concords and Flash Gordon than it does with Iron Man, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just perfect. Like, watching it was the only time that I felt, I think, in any Marvel movie where I felt like that 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 the, the director got away with something. Like, somehow made a big budget uh, Taika Waititi movie. And um, where even the other ones I really like, like Winter Soldier or, or Iron Man 3 that we, we talked about on the show, I do feel like I'm more congrat- – like, oh – they made a really good Marvel movie using their sensibility, and I and I think Thor is the only one that kind of was able to 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 be fifty fifty, where it's a Watiti movie and a Marvel movie. And I also think, um, I mean, it's why the 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 Marvel movie, like the only one that I'm really really looking forward to. I guess I guess I'm kind of looking forward to Doctor Strange now that Sam Raimi's directing it, but. <clears throat> um, uh, but but before that, the only one that I'm really really looking forward to is the uh, I think it's called Thor Go- uh, Love and Thunder. Yeah, I think it's Love and Thunder. I think they're taking they're 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 continuing down the sort of like Flash Gordon uh, 80s space opera with killer rock music kind of path, um, which yeah. is like my preferred Marvel Guardians one and two and the Taika Waititi side of the equation is far more interesting to me because like. I liked those creators before they got pulled into these this, yeah. this franchise, and I can still feel like those movies are part of their 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 kind of overall efforts. And yeah, like the, he brings over um, he brings over some of his like collaborators from previous movies, like Rachel House, who's also in Boy. Um, she is in uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, and then she does a voice of one of like the prisoners in uh, Thor Ragnarok. 
Um, so well, like, Sam Neill's in Thor Ragnarok too. There's some really cute sort of like I'm going to bring my friends along kind of approach to this, um, which I, I find very charming. Um, and the fact that like uh, not to spoil anything for um, what we do in the shadows, but like that exists in the same universe. The show exists in the same universe as the movie. Yeah. And uh, Taika and <laughs> Taika is a big voice in the show. Like he's not just like he didn't just sign off, sign away the rights. Like he's very much there to make sure this show feels like the movie. And I would argue the show has pretty much surpassed the movie at this point. Like I there are parts of the show where I've like I quoted it back again and again and again because I think it's so fucking funny. That's not a knock on the movie, but it's a show that like it's it's a sign that like. Well, the movie as a concept was one that was right for you could keep doing this for a very long time. Yes. It was perfect to expand into uh, a, a short sitcom format with like a decent little budget. Um, and you can hear his voice there. It's similar with with uh, Thor Ragnarok, just obviously less so. Um, and I hope that uh, that keeps happening with these movies. And then he can, you know, uh, keep parlaying his Marvel money into or his Marvel, Marvel cachet into making more side projects weird side projects i don't think many of the people i've talked to have liked jojo rabbit but we did definitely talk about our best of 2019 i think it's a it's an it's an effort that failed but there's there's enough there that you go man you you turn these knobs farther this way and then turn off that knob all the way and you get a really good movie. But my point is that, like, he got to make a, a Hitler comedy yeah. where a Polynesian Jewish guy, to, his, to use his own term, got to play Hitler uh, in the middle of the Trump presidency, uh, in the middle of him making Marvel movies. Like, if he gets yeah. to keep doing whatever the fuck he wants and, and while making these big budget movies, like, great, right? Like, we didn't lose anything. Yeah, Lydia, I'm surprised a little that you haven't seen What We Do in the Shadows as a movie, only because it definitely feels like it hits both of your interests, which... I'm embarrassed I haven't seen this movie. <laughs> it's one of the best horror comedies I think they've made since, like, the 80s. Like, Yeah, I don't know why it's not... You know, it never came across my, you know, watch list, but it's like, ugh, I gotta get on that. What, what, when you're when you're you're in need of a good laugh, um, but you don't necessarily want to watch a big, bright, shiny comedy, like you want to watch something with a, a sort of dark, acidic sense of humor, get on that because it would it'll it'll make your night so much better. I watched it so many times when I'm like not feeling particularly good, um, and it has rescued me. Well, and again, you shouldn't feel bad because I have owned the first season since it came out. Like I pre-subscribe to digitally buy and i still haven't watched even the first season of this i show. spent this whole pandemic like trying to watch movies that were my blind spots and that should have been on my list so instead i spent the whole time re-watching you know friday the 13th from big beginning to end and like michael myers <laughs> from beginning to end it's like why it's I a well, I can, project okay i, well, I, I can say <laughs> i can say from experience lydia that <laughs> What we do in the shadows is better than, at a minimum, Friday the 13th, part five. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. That's where I'm up to in my life. So I'm just saying. You're setting the bar high. <laughs> <laughs> I try. 
Well, and they were also speaking of things that like I love how much they stay involved. Like, uh, there's a spinoff of what we do in the shadows called Wellington Paranormal, which I haven't I haven't seen, but Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi are heavily involved in that show as well. Created it, um, write, do directing stuff for it. So it's it, it's fun. It shows you how important like BBC America is, right? That like yeah. because of BBC America, we get to you know like we have like parents in. Uh, r- like rural Tennessee, like they're like I love Downton Abbey. Like because of BBC America, like you, uh, Britain gets to shove all their exports at us. But like not not every country gets that, right? So like, well, me trying to find a way to watch Wellington Paranormal legally is not not panned out. Yeah, you're like I got to change my citizenship to New Zealand <laughs> if I could. Which probably, to be fair, yeah, probably yeah. a great idea in general right now. But, we uh, we talked about my, my wife and I. Uh, our honeymoon was in um, New Zealand, and we uh, talked about it uh, for like the first month or two we were back. <laughs> we're like, how hard would this be? Uh, very hard. <laughs> they know what yeah, they've they got. They don't want you. They know what they've got. Basically, if you, so. get, if you get a company to hire you there, it's it's easier, right? Like, it's just a green card situation. If you just want to, like, pick up and move there, you're kind of stuck. You need to be contributing to the economy immediately. Uh, yeah. Fucking contribute, Peter. You can't just be a freeloader <laughs> living off the bush. Uh, speaking of which, <laughs> I, you know what? Uh, maybe these things aren't related, but... I do see where Watiti could have um, – I don't know. Like, I don't want to keep calling him Taika Waititi. I'm not sure which one sounds – like, does he prefer to say Taika? I'm not on a first-name basis. I don't call Martin Scorsese Marty. I'll just say Scorsese. Uh, but I I think probably where he had a little bit of confidence in to make uh, uh, such a challenging movie like Jojo Rabbit, which is like – on any level, like I'm gonna make a comedy about uh about you know Nazi Germany. Hitler's very involved. It's about a Nazi boy. Like that's a tough movie to make, even if the you know the novel hits you and you're like, there's a lot here that's worth sharing. Um, I think there's you know it's not quite to that level, but I do think the idea of a you know a young adult going off with a with with a with a with a strange man into the wilderness um that's that can be a tough line to walk as well and and like i think this movie does a really good job at never making like that addressing kind of the elephant in the room that like hey like most people if they're reading the paper and found some 65 year old man disappear into the woods with a 15 year old boy wouldn't think that that's a fun adventure for the boy. And I, I, I think the movie has a very, like, the fact that you never really are confronted with the the implications or a lot of the tough stuff while the, while the movie doesn't shy away from it. Like I said, there's a, there's a, there is a legitimately funny scene talking about a very serious thing where the, the hunters are, are understandably given the implication that there's, uh, something uh, not great going on in the woods between Heck and Ricky, where Ricky is just describing chores that he did, and the hunters get the impression that there's abuse going on. Um, the fact that this movie somehow is able to acknowledge it, walk the line, but but make the relationship seem uh, genuine, um, I think is an impressive feat. 
Because it's so easy to just be like, this is creepy shit. I don't like this. Um, Do you remember the origin point of why Ricky understands that some people take sexual abuse from other people? There's a very tragic sort of like drop that they has that like one of his friends that was in foster care with him. She uh, sounds like she accused her foster parents of or foster father of of abuse and he killed her. Oh, interesting. I guess. See, they're very good at saying it from his perspective. I was under the impression that like she was having a rough time in foster care and then killed herself, Um, which is I, I referenced it a few times in my plot recap. Um, because that is a very important point in the movie and that sharing that with heck is an important point. I guess I, I completely missed that part though. Yeah. It's a very interesting theme because it runs under it, which is that like sexual abuse happens in the foster care system. Um, and it, but yet these are children. So like he doesn't have like a total understanding of like the import of what it is or even what it means in like a sort of, you know graphic or grounded sense um and so there's a moment at the end of the movie where he's mad at heck and so he yells he's molestering me um <laughs> and like it's it's obviously like it's a very touchy awful subject right and it'd be very triggering for a lot of people it is it is an extension of him being like it's an extension of him being like uh oh um kids in the foster system that say that they were abused um that that's a story like people start to pay attention to you then and it's not saying that there's like an an epidemic but it's interesting because ricky isn't doesn't seem like he's innocent but he comes across as very innocent it's because all of his icons aren't children his icons are uh, like adult rappers and movie gangsters right like he was raised on like on like Scarface, <laughs> he's raced on like uh, uh, Tupac and like other rap music videos, right? Like it, it's it's uh, his understanding of the world is both like naive, uh, both it's sort of like beautifully naive, but also like uh, unfortunately adult because like he's been exposed to stuff that you know a a kid should either yeah. not be exposed to or no one should ever be exposed to. Right? But he also has this very innocent way about him, like, not not affecting him. Like, he's still very, like, funny and positive and, like, when he first gets to his, yeah. you know, with Heck and Bella, like, he doesn't seem, like, he's like, ah, this, is, this isn't gonna work, but he quickly warms up and he's making jokes and being funny and Maybe that that helped him bring his his true personality out, but it's it's very endearing. I, I think it's a little bit because he's not expecting anything from anyone, right? Like he he's kind of he, you wouldn't describe him as growing cold or callous, but like because sometimes that like that's something that settles in later in life. But it is something where he isn't expecting safety, trust, love, all the things that like. You know, kids expect from parental figures in their his life. little hottie in his bed at night. Yeah, like so that's. What was so I was like, "What's a hottie?" I'm like, "Oh, okay." I know. I had to look that one up. I think the, <laughs> the hot water bottle. Yeah, the hot yeah. water bottle. Yeah, I didn't know what it was, but my wife said that apparently her mom used to give it to give it to her when she was feeling sick growing up. It's like little things like that, and he's like, "Oh, I feel so warm inside." And it's such a yeah. tiny thing. It's like it's it's also like. 
uh, Bella is not like a financially well-off person. Like she lives out in the country. The house is, is it, it, like the paint is peeling on the walls. The house is not doing great, but she's just like the movie isn't judgmental about any of that. And it doesn't fetishize no. class differences. It's that Bella has enough to take care of him. And he just sees like the hot water bottle, which is like, I think it's like a $5 item or a $7 item, right? Like he sees that as such a beautiful thing, not because she gave him anything. It's that she was like, you deserve to have something She was nice thinking of you. those things. She wa- yeah. I can yeah, see being cold I, I, and lonely in this room. I left, a, I left a sharp knife for you to stab monsters and I gave you a hot water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like she is actually putting herself in, in his position, which is like – I. You know, Lydia, as a, as a parent yourself, I'm sure you recognize this, where, like, um, I I do feel like the biggest disconnect between – our biggest line between, like, good parenting and bad parenting comes from an inability to, to em- empathize with, like, what it feels like to be your child's age. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, sometimes my dad will be like – I'll be like, Dad, you never said – hugged me or you never <laughs> – did this or did that because he's very t- rough and tough and he'd be like well you had a roof over your head and you had food yeah <laughs> I'm like well that's I needed more than that yeah, <laughs> yeah like, like, like a hottie not- in my bed I needed a hottie <laughs> in my bed something yeah I, I think that's so right because there's so much of like that well, I didn't hurt you, or I, you know, I made sure you had food, and I did this. It's like, yeah, basic but like, necessities is that's what good parenting to some yeah, people means. Yeah, lack of de- uh, depravity, uh, and I mean that in the term of like depriving things from children, um, which may not be the right way to use that word. As I said it out loud, deprivation. Yeah, but like that's not necessarily good parenting, and I and I like that I. I think this is especially like a a boomer boomer thing and older where that idea of like like I I don't remember my parents ever really talking about what it they they have stories from their childhood but I I don't remember them ever like talking about what it felt like to be a kid to what it felt like to be 5 or 10 or 15 and like and and instead it was just like a, yeah i did this stupid thing and that was stupid and my parents punished me for it and i shouldn't have been so stupid and yeah hopefully by me telling you this story you don't do stupid things and it's like well <laughs> there's so much more to being to being 15 and and yeah your unrelated story that has no connection to me actually doesn't change the way i'm having trouble relating to you know uh uh my friends or people that i'm attracted to or uh, all the pressure that's suddenly being put up to me, like classes matter now uh, or anything else. And like, you know, and that's why I really love the, the portrayal of, of, of the foster mom of Bella in here, because it's not, it's not even, it's not even like movie. Like I'm going to be a good mom or a good auntie as she calls herself to, to you. Like she, she's, uh, she's still herself in this very like specific way. Like, you know, she, she, they, they kill animals because they have to on their farm. Um, and she like, you know, Ricky has this sense of himself as this tough, tough guy. And like I said, you know, on one of the first days he's like, yeah, I'm going to see you kill this boar. 
um, because this is how we survive. And like she, she writes funny songs for him on the piano because that's one of her passions, clearly. And now I have someone to share this with because I doubt Hack was really getting down to all of her sick beats. Uh, <laughs> would be my guess. Um, You're right. She also gave him a dog seat. for his birthday, and that was really yeah. like sweet, a sweet gesture. Like who, who wouldn't want like a dog for a best friend when you live out in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, the, yeah. Pig, the pig hunt sequence I think that you touched on, Aaron, is like really crucial to the understanding of Bella. And like, it's funny that she occupies, you know, whatever. I'm not going to say one tenth of the movie, but she occupies whatever uh, one out of eleven of the, ch- the the chapters, right? Um, and uh, a huge and, and pig hunting is like a big part of New Zealand culture. Like pork is just like a big part of you know the New Zealand diet, and like um, the. It, it, the scene is shot with these like slasher semiotics like it's this bloody struggle with like a knife being raised <laughs> and then it ends with Bella with this big gr- like grinning smile like celebrating going like woo and there's even like a shot of like the the the, the boars like uh, <laughs> spurting kind of out. like shaking a final death rattle like the movie is shot from his perspective from uh, Ricky's perspective so to him this is just like slasher movie shit this isn't like the bland necessity of life on a farm, right? That like, yeah, life this is not what I expected. This is it's like life out in the bush involves hunting and hunting involves blood. And it like, that's, you know, he's someone who like idolizes like Scarface and shit, but like in these moments, right. It's not what he sees it. And what I love about this is like Bella has a, Bella is covered in blood and she's so excited about the boar. Yeah. Um, we have dinner lots, tonight. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that, you know, later in the movie, like plucking the the um, plucking the the fur out of some sort of like weasel or something small. Um, yeah. And and uh, it, what's funny is like Bella on some level because of class stuff is not uh, you know the ideal dream stepmother, but in every way that matters, she's the perfect stepmother, right? Like yeah, in every ways that in every way that matters, like she actually like you were talking about sitting sits down and attempts to understand Ricky and like uh, tries to involve him, but she's not trying to get a and thinks what does Ricky him. need? Yeah, she's trying to not be like I okay, here's Ricky how we live. Yeah. And I'd like to make you feel important and useful. So why don't you try? And then she's like, why don't you go bother Heck? See if Heck has like, you know, something for you to do. Like, and then she takes him shooting and she notices he's a really good shot. Like, and she gets so excited. She's like, she, found yeah. something that they can do together. Like, <clears throat> she's not looking for one more hand. She's looking for like a way to give this boy a little bit of meaning. Yeah. And I, I will say, so this is probably a good time to mention. I did watch this with my six year old daughter. Um, I totally forgot about the boar scene. Um, And I also watched it with my 36-year-old wife, and I forgot the dog gets murdered in it. I'm like, oh, that's why we didn't watch this together five years ago. Because you don't like when dogs die. And two Um, dogs are in in, uh, danger. Like, there's a moment where Tupac runs away, and you're like, is Tupac coming back? Yeah. So, uh, Maya was, was definitely into that part. Um, because I don't think she'd ever seen anything like it. Unfortunately, she could not keep up with the New Zealand accents, uh, which is not sh- shocking. Um, and she, so she, she didn't kinda, watch Flight of the Concords in 2007? You know, I've been trying to get into it since she was two, Peter, and, and uh, much much like you – no, I'm, I'm kidding. No, she's never – <laughs> when she was negative four or whatever look i think it was a big win that i've got i've gotten her to watch uh 
a few Charlie Chaplin shorts, which feels like a big win. That's a win. Uh, she's watched King Kong and some other black and white movies. She does not understand why they wouldn't use color if they can. Um, we're, we're, we're getting there. But this uh, New Zealand accents, I get it. Like, I grew up on Monty Python, so I feel like I feel I, I, I'm a little less lost when I when there's thick accents in movies. But um, I, that's a lot for a six year old. My daughter, if she's walking by, she'll be like, what language are they speaking? I'm like, English. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, you don't get it, governor. <laughs> She's like, what? Why'd you call me governor? <laughs> uh, I I do want to make sure we get into we we touch on this. This movie is very very funny. Um, I love all the little touches that are both like just straight jokes, but also like the 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 sentimental non sentimental type. Um, uh, like moments in these people's life. Like I really like that. You know. That Ricky at some point was told as a way to process your feelings is to is to write little haikus about situations. All uh, all of our, his haikus are amazing because they do follow the letter of haikus, but are just like telling about like someone who was a dick to him or about like you know a, a stomachache he had or stuff like that. Every time it's funny to me. Ricky just learns, like, all I have to do is follow the 575 structure. And I'm yeah, there. and I can say whatever I want, too. I can say whatever right? I want as long as yeah. it's in 575. Um, and, like, even Which he also tries on. to tell Heck, like, process, you know, your feelings, and this is a good way to do it. So it's very cute. Ricky's sort of innocence is what guides the movie, right? Because Ricky has something to share with Heck, even though Heck is, like, a bitter old man a bitter grumpy old man and like heck has some stuff to share with ricky but uh in a sense heck mostly has like survival skills and sort of practical stuff um and ricky has like you know how to survive as a human being skills yeah there's one point in the movie where heck tells him when was the last time you like bathed and he was like i don't know like a month ago (laughs) Yeah, it's like really. Do you you didn't tell him to take a bath. Well, I love the hex. Like you need to do it more, <laughs> which is just like like once every three weeks. Like I I love that. I love that heck is not necessarily trying to be a, a father figure. And I also like you know you mentioned the class components too. I like that the movie offers a very compelling case. Not like it's very easy to see why Ricky would want to do this. Right, like he has no connection. He's a fifteen year old boy. I'm going to go live out in the wilderness. That's the fucking, like, Tom Sawyer shit, right? Like, as long as I'm not I'm in the back live- of a police cruiser being delivered to an- yet yeah. another house that doesn't want me. The harder part, I think, that this movie accomplishes with aplomb is, like, how do you get to the point that Heck is legitimately okay with this plan, right? Because if Heck is, like, is, like, not on board with it, it just becomes a different movie, right? It becomes more of a drama like, how can you let them have these little moments out in the wilderness that are so funny and compelling and feel like they're true partners navigating this? If Heck is like, we got to get you back, Ricky. Like, it just – it becomes a different, less interesting movie and a type of movie that we've seen more. And so, the fact that they're able to kind of give like, hey, like, I'm no one to these people. Like, at this point, the TV is talking about me. <laughs> like, I can't beat the TV. And all I did was try to save this kid and find this kid who went and got himself lost in the wilderness, broke my ankle, and now the entire I, – like, I have – I didn't even grow up learning to read, and the entire country is out to find me. Like, 
this is the only logical option I can see, especially knowing that Ricky will be safe and he potentially would be in danger like, you know, his friend and is expressing feelings of danger uh, in the idea of going back and what he will be faced to go to prison like I went to prison after having, you know, no chance by society. And I, that is so important for this movie to work as a comedy for the time that they have. Because you think about it, like, they're 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 back at that cut and actually have understand that – the world is out, or the country is out to get them, or out to find them. Thirty minutes into an hour and forty minute movie, right? So, like, if you're gonna have an hour of fun adventures, like, you need to be like on board with why Hack isn't being the response, the quote unquote responsible adult. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think they found a really good. Um lever in which to to create the situation where hack is out in the woods with somebody that he doesn't want to be out in the woods with and ricky is out in the woods with hack because he doesn't have any other options right like um i think that the movie finds a pretty good lever without it being contrived right like yeah and the and the fact that hack is immediately humbled and when he breaks his leg or breaks his ankle or whatever (laughs) is like pretty great because it's just a chance for ricky and uh, and hack to kind of rely on each other because like at this point ricky is super naive and knows absolutely nothing and hack is like i have to explain this shit to you because like otherwise we're not going to eat whereas like if hack didn't break his leg and didn't have to rely on ricky for anything which you know he barely does he might have never opened up at all he would have just been like all right we're beelining back to civilization i'm dumping you off just like the state says i'm supposed to And even when the the guys come to the station, he's like, "Oh yeah, you can take you could take the kid, but like I'm, I'm staying out here. I'm not going back to yeah. People want answers. <laughs> um, I yeah, love that. That's like a theme of the movie: is that like the the media is demanding answers from a situation that's pretty cut and dry, and so it kind of like makes them into outlaws um when it really didn't need to but you get it right like it's 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 it would be a national story i think under any circumstances um and i like that they're able to kind of play with that both the way that the media is treating it but also the way that the media kind of turns first as like people that need to be brought to justice specifically hack who whose wife died and then went crazy but then as all of a sudden like these like robin hood type folk heroes living in the wilderness uh, saving people who were close stealing to stealing shoes on occasion yeah um it's 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 really really uh nice i'll also mention we just to get back to the um to Taika for a second, uh, I do like this is a movie that could be easily shot and directed in a way that's very straightforward. I love all the different ways that uh, space is used in these open, the quote unquote like open wilderness, but that also feel very like compressed and condensed. Um, there's that the, the great early scene of like Ricky wandering around and it's like a a pan shot of him wandering into different scenes as opposed to fading or cutting through the montages. That's like just gorgeously directed. And then there's like all these fun, like visual comedy bits too, that work so well. There's the obvious ones of like uh, Ricky trying to do camouflage moments or stuff like that. But one of my favorites is the, uh, is Ricky and hack walking after they, they haven't had any encounters in a while. 
with the police and uh you know they're walking and they're like these fuck you know they're worse than you trying to find your way out here heck says like we're never gonna get caught at this rate and the camera pans slightly to reveal a bunch of police officers or SWAT team members or whatever chasing after them and then a slight pan back to go oh no they found us and <laughs> them immediately running and hiding. And it's like just a perfect way to take a, a legitimately funny situation and then add a bit of, you know, camera work, directorial flair to make the joke, you know, a hundred times funnier. Oh, yeah, I I entirely agree. I entirely agree. Um, Lydia, is there anything you want to throw in here sort of on like their 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 journey? It's a, it was a really good story about <clears throat> not necessarily like you wanting Heck to be his father, but just that they are able to open up with one another and find like a common ground and get some kind of bonding through that whole adventure that would have never happened if they hadn't taken off and gotten lost in the woods. It changes them both. It changes them and they they are able to trust one another and learn from one another. And although there's not a father-son relationship, at one point um, at the end of the movie, he's all, Heck has always said, like, I don't want to be called uncle. But he finally gives in. It's okay. You can call me uncle. Yeah. I never so, agreed to being called uncle. <laughs> it's a great um, story about... You know, you don't necessarily have to be a father figure to him. He just wants to be part of your life. And you shared this great adventure and you went through all this craziness. And there's a villain and that you, I guess, overcame, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> yeah. I think. I love her um, at the end. She's like reading the Miranda rights to to, to <laughs> Heck and uh, Andy, who is the who like actually did police work. Like he tackled a vigilante who was just going to shoot Heck. Um and he's like, people in uh, police in New Zealand don't really say that. And also, you, you're not a policeman. Like, <laughs> the, the kind of like, like, he's like waiting the whole movie to like tell her to shut the fuck up because at this point he's finally like rid of her, right? Like, um, yeah. Well, and she, she just goes way above and beyond. I mean, that's I, we she talked turns about into an action movie. She's the one that makes. She basically engineers the end of the movie into being an '80s style action chase with slow mo cars slamming on top of each other. She has a tank. There's probably a, the one tank in New Zealand. <laughs> There's a synthwave score. Like it's basically yeah, just like really an good. '80s, yeah. like an '80s action movie sequence, and she turned it into that because that's what her idea of of you know helping is or being a hero is <laughs> is being like I drive a big fucking tank. Yeah. And we, we we get on a on a road chase. There's a scene where they meet across a ravine, right? And like it's the first time that. A social worker has a chance to confront Ricky, but they also like it's before the capture, so they get to kind of talk to each other. And I love she keeps describing herself as the Terminator, which at that point, you know, Terminator has been in Arnold Schwarzenegger has been in a lot of Terminator movies, and he's the hero in most of them. But then she goes back to clarify that she's the Terminator in the one where he's the villain and he, and Ricky is Sarah Connor before she could do chin-ups that I'm coming to hunt. And it's no, such a great part. moment. It's so good. Like the chin-up line is great, but you also realize that she says the Terminator and then he looks confused and he clarif she clarifies that she's the Terminator when he was a villain trying to murder an innocent woman. 
<laughs> it's so it's so good because it really like I said, I do think the movie recognizes that this is a social worker who is gone. <laughs> like she's she's funny, but she's she has gone well off the deep end into helping children <laughs> when she is correcting an interpretation. She's like thriving on this, you know, she's in charge and this is a military maneuver. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's she 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 thinks that's what it means to be a hero, right? Like she's she's been fully militarized, and um, I I just love uh, <laughs> I just love that the movie ends with uh, a cop just like very politely, very politely putting her in her place. Because <laughs> yes. um, that is that is like as close as the movie gets to a villain. But she is just like she does represent like a system that's just um, been so and warped. a meet and a and. It and is. she got her power due to like media like she was able to arrange this media event, right? And publicity around it. And she's gotten power based on like taking advantage of a twenty four hour news situation that like well I guess give her the power because if it goes well or if it goes poorly, at least she's the person that can like take all the blame slash credit and we can just say that we were you know, going along with what the social the the person who knows Ricky best. We says. trust it's a child welfare, right? Yeah. Because you keep um, saying no child left behind, no child left <laughs> behind. <laughs> Which is yeah. also funny because, like, did that mean I don't know enough about uh, you know educational history in New Zealand, but uh, oh, it's it's did, specifically did that, about America, right? Like, yeah, I was gonna say because like she, that was a Bush thing. Um, yeah. Well, she says that. She says, that's not my slogan, but it's a slogan that I live by. Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah, I was curious if that was something that was, like, co-opted by conservatives in in New Zealand as well. Because, like, that was obviously, like, you know, it it rang true for what? (laughs) I was like, I remember the failures of No Child Left Behind. They always say that in America and in, you know, Department of Children and Family Services. Yeah, it's a a Bush era policy that has, I think, sort of survived as a mantra. For people yeah also andy does get one of the funniest moments and most underplayed moments of the movie which is when he goes on tv to say you know there's a reward for them uh ten thousand dollars dead or alive and he looks off camera and goes oh alive yeah no we, we want them alive <laughs> <laughs> the comedy in this movie is just everything yeah. So good. Um, so I good. also like, I'll give extra credit to Rise Darby now that this is like my fifth time seeing this movie. When he's describing America, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but he's describing the movie Brazil. Oh, yeah. He's, you have to fill out one form and then you got to fill out another form. You don't want to fill out another you, form. You don't want to be on the form. You got to fill out another form. Like, that is not any country. That is the movie Brazil. I, I was thinking that specifically, um, which is something we talk a lot about in this show is like this sort of fear of bureaucracies that bureaucracies are going to gonna hammer you down. Um, so I feel like that's kind of touching into the, the movie's overall like apprehension about the um, child, child welfare service and, and – um, and and like this fear of of you know just getting sorted out as a piece of paper right like clearly something it wasn't you know a brazil like situation but something drove psycho sam out into the into the bush right um, it does feel like it's possible he watched the movie brazil and went this is where we're headed i'm out and, and then just, just decided the that's what reality was <laughs> i mean fun. like it doesn't feel that off base no, no, it doesn't. Um, we didn't talk about Taika as the priest. We can talk about that real quickly. 
tells the story of the two doors behind one door. So all the all the best sweets, Fanta, Doritos, <laughs> Coke Zero. <laughs> so the the second door is it Jesus? Well, yeah, I mean it's Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> like he he he's, he's not gonna like deny his own metaphor. <laughs> yeah, he I love it because like I've been at um you know um, and then uh, being the youngest member of my family and being one of the younger families in like my extended Irish family Irish Catholic family I've been at uh, my share of funerals uh, and I've seen a lot of priests that are just like this kind of like. They're kind of uh, just reaching into their bag for whatever metaphor they have or like they're clearly bored because they didn't know the person at all. Like these those sort of uh, services where you just leave more confused. (laughs) So I don't know if I ever told you a story and then we will get to final thoughts, although I think you guys may both find it somewhat funny. So my my wife and I are not religious at all, but Shauna wanted to get married in the Catholic Church when we got married. Uh, because she like had this priest that she knew for a long time. They meant a lot. And it was, it was like, even though we didn't go to this parish, it was like, it would be nice if he could marry us. Right. So I was like, okay, you know, like, you know, who cares? Like, um, let's, let's try to figure out the short ceremony as opposed to the long ceremony. But if, you know, if, if, if it would mean something to you to have this person marry you, I'm on board. A month before we get married, the priest gets transferred. I think just a normal transfer, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't know for sure. But they're like, oh, yeah, but, you know, like for for the for the, the Catholic Church or the diocese, they're like, we just want to get married in the Catholic Church. So a priest is the big thing. So a month before we got married, this other – we had to meet this other priest because it's already all fucking set up and invitations and blah, 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 who's just like a guy – who asks us a couple things and then, like, for his little, like, talk about us, like, says versions of that, like, he's reading from note cards, like, Aaron met Sean at work. And and it was like, oh, my God, this sucks so bad. So, yeah, I, I understand the kind of, like, the idea of, like, priests just really just trying to wing in it. It's just it happened to my to them cousin's too. wedding, too, where he's like... And we all know Joe loves accounting, and he looked so confused because there's, like, one part in a Catholic Mass that can be customized. There's, like, one 30-second part yeah. in the Catholic Catholic uh, wedding that could be customized. We did do the no Mass option, which apparently is an option. Yeah, they went, they, they went full Mass. They went, they went full hog. I remember a lot of sermons going to a Catholic church every Sunday of, like... Well, Princess Diana's dead. What could that tell us about our faith? <laughs> A lot of that, like, what's it? You know, I guess you got to write one of those things every week. What's in the news this week? (laughs) It's basically like the John Oliver show for condemning people to hell. (laughs) Uh, Lydia, is there any other scenes we missed? Any final thoughts you want to add? No, just that this is a great introduction to Waititi film, and I'm glad that it was my first one because it seems like I kind of gauge it in... The old days by, like, <laughs> would I buy this movie for $20? Yes, I would. Um, instead of, you know, kind of like, well, it's it's streaming. But um, if I if I had to buy it on DVD and be part of my collection, it would definitely be one of those movies that I see myself watching over and over again. Or when I feel like having, like, a comfort film. 
Um, and it's definitely one I'd add to my collection because, you know, Ricky and Heck are <laughs> a, quite a team and the comedy of the movie, it, it all works and it's, a, it's, it's a beautifully shot film and, and, um, I care about the characters. New Zealand photography. Like, yeah. it beautifully captures the North Island, like volcanoes off in the distance and like, it's just a very, beautiful country and there's a i mean other than just supporting the film industry and supporting the you know the country of new zealand there's a reason peter jackson shot his lord of the rings movies there and it's because like the country is super diverse like there is thick ass jungle there's like barren volcanic wastes there's beaches like you can kind of like there's there's snowy mountaintops like you can kind of like make a lot of the country look like uh, a big fantasy realm um, somewhat easily. Right. Um, and, and this, this movie takes advantage of it. It's a road movie, right? Like there's a part where they just play a, a, a Nina Simone song um, while it's sort of like almost a training montage. And like, I don't know anybody that would complain about watching Sam Neill and Julian Dennison uh, scrambling around the bush while we're looking at just gorgeous uh, New Zealand uh, geography, right? Like, um, it's it's you know it's a simplistic thing to shoot for in a movie, but like New Zealand's uh, geography did a lot of the work for you. Doesn't mean you don't get credit for it. Uh, it's just a very pretty movie to look at. I feel like that's probably a good my good final thought is like it is like ultimately a road movie, and yeah. um, it's it's more about how you feel as you go along the journey. And and, and I love road movies. I end up rewatching a lot of road movies um, all, all the time. Like, yeah, you always message me. You're like road trip best movie of all time. That's what I say, <laughs> what's, the, what's, the, what's the joke in there about Boston, Texas, <laughs> Austin? Austin, Massachusetts, <laughs> Boston. Yeah, that was probably it. That was probably... <laughs> um, but like, Stand by Me is like you know a road movie, and it's like though these these kids are going on this journey, like it a, a, a road movie, a journey has an inherent sense of like you're gonna have fun, you're gonna be in peril. Like it, it's it's just a it's it's a it's a country that invites that sort of story, and it's nice to see something set in that story that's also not just like a, a nine hour fantasy epic. It's just like an <laughs> hour and forty minute sweet story about two human beings just connecting, even though they have almost nothing in common. Well, they get their legally required reference to Lord of the Rings in a very funny moment. It is extremely <laughs> funny. The like they're like hiding under a log or whatever, and then when they finally get away, his first comment is like, "It's like Lord of the Rings." Well, he's doing the ring thing on and off, like they're disappearing, right? And Heck is looking at him, not understanding what hand signals he's giving him. And Heck's like, "What was that all about?" He's like, "It's like Lord of the Rings." I love that. Heck love has that. not. Shockingly, Heck has not seen. Uh, uh, you mean the um, the the recluse uh, ex-convict <laughs> who has lived on a farm clearly is, is for ten or fifteen years? No, no. Uh, so I guess for my final thoughts, I'll just oh, there's one wonderful moment we didn't get a chance to talk about, which I think kind of just speaks to the way that this movie handles sentimentality because that is the month we're doing, right? It's it's give me a hug. Or who needs a hug month. There's a moment where early on where Bella talks about this lake up in the bush that she loves and would love her. You know, someday when she returns to the earth, when she dies for her ashes to be thrown into that lake. And that's something she shares. Uh, we find it later specifically with Ricky. Like, Heck wasn't aware of that. It was just a moment when uh, they were talking about how beautiful, like, the bush and the wilderness in New Zealand is. 
and you know, in, a, in kind of uh, opening up uh, to to Ricky, Bella shares that moment. And so when he's about to run away, he takes her ashes, Bella's ashes, with him, which which Hack is just kind of put in a box. Like it's it's basically like she's gone. This whole thing is gone. I'm going to go leave. And so there's a point where they're at uh, a lake or that lake. I wasn't 100% clear, even having seen this a few times. Uh, but it's a beautiful, gorgeous like lake on top of a mountain, which is exactly what Bella described. And Ricky comes out with the box of ashes and just says, hey, she she told me that she always wanted to to be here. And they scatter the ashes and essentially, um, you know, it's a very it's a very short scene. It's not that all that sentimental. And heck, just kind of is there for it. But then looks at, at Ricky and says, um, thanks for bringing her. And then they go back out into the adventure. They're going to meet Rise Darby and they're going to have their chases and stuff like that. But I think that moment is like just a perfect, perfect summation of what this movie is doing at that kind of emotional level like there's there's not a lot of words that need to be explained there's not a lot of moments that need to be had verbally everyone in that moment understands how important the stakes are and what's going on and you as an audience member because the movie's so well written and directed and acted and everything else understand what's going on and those kind of like recognition of sure dump these ashes here and instead of like a I love you, come here, thank you so much for doing this, tears falling, there's just a just a kind of a head nod and a thank you for bringing her. And uh, and that's perfect. And that's that's this movie accomplishes, I think, a lot. It's funny, it's has great acting, it's you know, beautifully shot. But why it's in this month particularly is because of moments like that that aren't as obvious as the rest of the movies that we're talking about this month or, or, or moments that you probably personally think of when you think of like what's a movie that I think of as like uh, gives me a warm hug or makes me feel like a warm hug at the end. But like this, this movie is still doing that in a very specific way that like uh, isn't as obvious but isn't any less affecting than those other movies. I agree. I agree. Um, good, good wrap up, Aaron. Um, Thanks. Okay, so that's why you keep that's why you keep me around. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm. Uh, what say? It's, it's a it's a great movie. It's on Hulu right now. Um, so, yeah. uh, Lydia, do you have anything to plug? Uh, let me try for the third week of March, and I'll try to get that ebook narrated. It's called Deadly Darlings, and so just look out for that. Hopefully, awesome. it'll get done soon. Awesome. And we'll include a link to the to the first one that uh, that you released. I think we I think we were able to include a link in our crazies episode. Oh, cool! Yeah, awesome! Yeah, Jeff Davis eight. That's already out on Google and iTunes. Perfect. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and we have one more week of this, uh, which is the movie Inside Out, an episode we may have already recorded. Uh, Andrew Bloom is our guest, uh, writer for Consequence of Sound. Great guest. Really gets the movie in a way that. 33% of the people that are on next week's episode don't. But uh, uh, let me know when it gets too mean, Peter. Is that no, no, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> that that also sounds like someone who's also plotting, as you said. Like, no, no, no we're good. No, we're, we're good. I know where you fine. live. Uh, that is a very fun episode. Uh, and yeah, uh, I think one we went for a long time. 
on. So uh, excited to – I was about to say excited to hear that next week. Uh, excited to <laughs> release that next week. Uh, but yeah, uh, and that will wrap up uh, – I think that's a perfect movie to wrap up. Give me a hug. Month. And good night. I'm going to go to the bush. Um, I, I think I'll go to the bush too. <laughs> Thanks, I'll go to the bush. Yeah, I'm going to go to the bush. I'm going to go to bush. Bush. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs>